welcome to this episode of Anesthesia on Air. This is the podcast from the Royal College of Anesthetists. This podcast is the fourth in a series in which we look at the heritage of the Royal College of Anesthetists and the history of anesthesia. My name is Anna Maria Rollin and I'm a retired consultant anesthetist. I'm the current chair of the Heritage and Archives Committee at the college. I'm delighted to be chairing this episode in which we will look at the history of military anaesthesia. Joining me in this conversation are Professor Peter Mahoney and Colonel Sundararajan Jagdish, both of them distinguished military anaesthetists, and I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Thank you, Maria, first of all, for the invitation. I'm now an independent history researcher interested in military medicine. I began my anaesthesia career back in 1981 in Hyderabad, of the chloroform commission fame, I had been unsuccessful in getting a postgraduate seat in my parent medical college because of sadly positive discrimination. And I ended up in Britain in 82. I spent about six years in the NHS and even then felt I needed to belong to something more of a family than the NHS was proving to be then. And I applied to join all three services. Famously, the service that will remain nameless said that because I was not a Christian, didn't have a vacancy, the Air Force sent me a return first-class ticket from Hull, I think, where I was then, to London. The Army hadn't replied by then. So I spent about six years. I don't know, so I spent a dozen years in the Royal Air Force. Because of my interest in pain medicine, circumstances dictated that I transfer seamlessly to the Royal Army Medical Corps, which I did in 1999. And here I am, really, having deployed to all sorts of places over the years. I also was able to assume managerial roles, so to speak, uh, in the latter years as a chief of staff where I was helping procurement and uh, staffing, uh, deploying deployment rotors and so on. I was just reflecting that my military career means much more to me than I can possibly describe. And also, uh, having started anesthesia in 81, of someone who started his career using ether and galamine to finish it using target control total intravenous anesthesia with bispectral index monitoring, I feel is quite something, really. Uh, It's very gratifying, as is the invitation to talk today. Thank you very much. Peter? I'm Peter Mahoney. I'm still working as a consultant anaesthetist within the NHS. In addition, I have a couple of visiting academic appointments. One is as a visiting professor at Imperial with the Centre for Blast Injury Studies, and another is with Cranfield University as a visiting professor within the Forensic Institute. I started my anaesthetics in 1987, and I'd actually joined the reserves in 1980 and served with the reserves until 2002 when I came across to the regulars and served with the regular army until 2020, followed by a couple more years in the reserves, and then finished when the, the clock struck 60. Would you like to tell us a little about becoming the Foundation Defence Professor? In yes. Um, I, th- I think that was a big step forward for our speciality, and I was really fortunate to be in the right place at the right time to take this on. There had been previous attempts to create academic anaesthesia, certainly within the army. Um, Brigadier John Restall was was a senior lecturer and he very kindly sent me his resignation letter from that post where he had been extremely frustrated by 
being unable to present his own research topics to funding committees because the surgeons dictated they should do that for him. And he said, I thought very graciously, that a military anaesthesia would come in the future. But at that point, there just wasn't the climate for it or the appetite for it. So I think I was very fortunate in that at the time of my appointment, we had a strong college of anaesthetists and an interested military and previous surgeon general. I think it was Ian Jenkins had engaged with the college. Well, these letters you very kindly found for me in the college archives and had engaged with Dr Judith Hulf, who was then the president of the College of Anaesthetists, to convene a board and competitively run the position. I was very lucky to be appointed. I do remember the external uh, advisor to the, the board from Professor from Cranfield and I said, but they asked me, what would I do if I was professor? And do I have any questions? And my question was, what are you expecting from your appointee? And he said, well, I need a street fighter. And I didn't understand what he meant then. I do now, having had to tussle with universities, funding bodies and military and academic structures to impose a degree of will to help develop the specialty of academic anaesthesia within the military. Thank you very much. I think you're extremely privileged to have two such knowledgeable people to introduce us to the history of military anaesthesia, and I will leave it to the two of you to carry on the conversation. Maria, thank you very much. Thank you, Maria. I think I'd like to take the initiative, if I could please, Jag, and um, ask you you a question, because you clearly have a deep interest in history, and you've spoken to me about the work you do at the Medical Society of London researching medical history and the access you have to the fabulous library there. And on the subject of history, you will know the historian Emily Mayhew, who did the book about Afghanistan, A Heavy Reckoning, and her, and her other books about military medicine. And uh, I think she uses the phrase, we are trustees of each other, And do you think that phrase has a resonance with military medicine and with military anaesthesia of the mid-19th century, soon after the first introduction of anaesthesia in Britain? Yeah, Emily, yes, I I do know Emily well, and she's such a champion, isn't she, of military medicine. I was sorry to miss her talk at the Senior Fellows Club recently. She used that phrase, a connection with the uh, guinea pig club, survivors of the horrific uh, burns injuries in the RAF crew, uh, in Second World War in uh, East Grinstead. And sadly, I don't think in the mid-Victorian period, just a decade after anaesthesia was first used in uh, Britain, it was all that collegiate, the atmosphere. Certainly, anaesthetists as such didn't exist. And even if they did, they didn't have much agency because surgeons of the day pretty much dictated uh, who gets anaesthesia and what to use and so forth. From a military point of view, Sir John Hall, he was uh, Inspector General of Hospitals during the Crimean War, uh, right in the middle of the century, uh, 1852, 1854, I think. He famously said uh, in relation to chloroform that the smart of the knife is such a powerful stimulant and that he would rather have a soldier ball lustily than sink silently into the grave. And that edict of Hall's did kind of uh, stunt the growth of military anesthesia for a while. But thankfully, I mean, despite the fact that he had allies like the church, and uh, George Guthrie, uh, who was then the president of the Royal College of Surgeons, there was enough public appetite, if you like, for this new 
phenomenon called anesthesia, thanks to pioneers like Snow and uh, Simpson. Um, he was aware that he was fighting against the tide of public opinion, Victorian public opinion, that is. To be fair to Hall, he didn't actually prohibit his uh, junior colleagues from using chloroform, but Florence Nightingale and he fell out big time. He had been given a knighthood just before Crimea or probably during the Crimea War, and she used to call him the knight of the Crimean burying grounds. Harsh. And I think we perhaps need to temper this with a realisation that Hall was merely trying to be as cautious as possible because he was aware that many of his medical officers had no experience in administering anaesthesia and B, he knew that chloroform had not been actually tested on the battlefield. So he was being understandably cautious and there is no evidence that he ever stopped anyone from using chloroform. Nightingale, I think she accused him of prohibiting the use of chloroform for uh, amputations, but there is no evidence that he did that. The whole has a kind of a bittersweet influence on military anesthesia. Uh, but there were people like Professor James Syme in Edinburgh who were very, very influential in trying to promote this new phenomenon. And so in terms of Emily's trustees thing, th- there wasn't enough of a spirit around at that time. So um, that kind of leads us onto the turn of the century. Right, so <clears throat> prior to this meeting for this podcast. I've actually been in the fellows room here at the college. Quick plug for all you anaesthetists out there. Come to your college, use the fellows room. I think it's underused. Um, Great resource. And uh, serendipitously, there's a publication from 2017 called The Lives of the Fellows, First Board of Faculty, 1948. And an article within that by Dr. Anne Thornbury talking about the influence of two world wars on the development of anaesthesia and the role that the foundation board members had within that. It's also on the college website. Also on the college website. So from your point of view, do you feel that military anaesthesia emerged as a distinct speciality in World War I? Sadly not. Anaesthesia, as it was then, was still being administered by uh, general duty medical officers of varying experience, and surgeons still held uh, sway in terms of deciding who gets what type of anaesthetic and so on. That would change, but certainly right at the beginning, that was the case. Also, everyone thinks of the Western Front when we talk about World War One. you know, the, those uh, emotive scenes from the Somme and whatnot. Uh, horrendous though it was, we should not forget other theatres of war, uh, my recent master's degree, my Mesopotamia, was my uh, focus of interest there. Due to absolutely horrendous flaws in planning and strategy, they had virtually no ether and chloroform for days on end, months on end sometimes. But the question you ask, Peter, uh, World War One, the historiography and the medical historiography of World War One is quite extensive, and I will therefore choose three aspects, call it what you will, to kind of illustrate the influence of World War One. Uh, these are, I must hasten to add that this is my personal choice. The first is a non-clinical aspect, which is that logistics and distance and availability of transport would decide what type of anaesthetic was available to be given. And that, quite an extent, is still valid to this day, depending on where one uh, engages in uh, war fighting. At that time, the order of preference was nitrous oxide, ether, chloroform, and ethyl chloride. And because of the unpredictability of availability of these agents, it was understood that 
all medical officers had to be adept at being able to administer each of these agents. But that was sadly not always the case because you could not gainsay who was going to be uh, available, uh, ready to use such and such an agent. So, like I said, in austere circumstances, even to this day, we are slightly at the behest of our, our uh, supply chain or resupply chain. I think there's no question about that. Certainly in the work I've done with aid agencies as opposed to the military, we've been very restricted by what could be imported into the country, the availability of power, water, equipment and resupply. And one day you could be ventilating somebody with halothane yeah. and another day you could be relying on intramuscular ketamine depending on what the supply chains could allow. But I digress. No, no, you make a perfectly valid point because it makes it all the more important that in the planning phase that uh, the infrastructure for anesthesia is suitably reflective of where one is going to. So the second uh, aspect that I've chosen is a clinical one. This is to do with wound shock, as it was called then. Um, There were some quite extraordinary individuals, American Walter Cannon, uh, the Canadian Bruce Robertson, who introduced blood transfusions in the field, and then the British physiologist Ernest Starling, William Bayliss. Uh, they, they all collaborated in one way or the other, though they did have some disagreements in principle, but uh, essentially the management of shock was being increasingly recognised, and they even set up shock rooms and shock teams And it was realized that focusing clinical effort in a very meaningful way like that improved mortality no end. This is something that I believe may actually be the very beginnings of what we now call as perioperative medicine, where optimizing someone uh, before they undergo surgery uh, uh, pays rich dividends. It Um, sounds like they knew things that we have relearned in subsequent conflicts. Jack, you describe shock rooms and blood transfusion in World War One, and it does feel like we had to relearn all those lessons for our recent conflicts. Uh, yes, in a way, I suppose so. But even for World War One, these individuals and uh, some of their colleagues made in statistical terms, actually didn't make a tremendous difference. It was only after World War I when uh, there was a 1917 inter-allied conference and the MRC, the Medical Research Council um, shock committee, they actually, using the data generated by these efforts, they were able to actually classify shock. And the understanding, I could, I would say, probably was arrived at after World War One, after the event, so to speak. But in terms of whether they've been forgotten, um, sadly, these lessons do get forgotten from time to time, don't they? Well, yes, I'm sure we'll explore that more when we talk about more contemporary conflicts. Now, you said there was a third point yes. you're going to talk about. So I've done uh, a non-clinical, a clinical. The third one is a technical one, okay. which is thanks to the efforts of uh, Jeffrey Marshall, Sir Jeffrey Marshall, who uh, himself had done quite a lot of work on shock, especially using subarachnoid anesthesia, and found that it was uh, pretty uh, unpredictable in terms of hypotension and uh, hypovolemic casualties. What he did was that he used a judicious combination of ether, oxygen, nitrous oxide and was able to reduce the mortality of 90% for above knee amputations to 25% in his hands. And what he did was he went to a local tinsmith in France and managed him to knock up 
contraption that that allowed him to give this this mixture and he sent off the uh, blueprints such as they were to uh, a firm called Coxeters in London to to build it for him uh, Coxeters warned him that that he had better patent it or publish it so that uh, his name gets associated with that but famously Marshall didn't seem to be interested in that and their captain Henry Boyle managed to snaffle these to be fair it wasn't anything underhand but Boyle modified this apparatus and and uh, that's who we associate the anesthesia uh-huh. machine with. Hence the really. Boyle's machine. Indeed, yes. yeah. yeah. Jeffrey Marshall did much, much more. And in fact, it was very pleasing that I was able to persuade the Tri-Service Anesthesia Society to name its highest award in his name. Ironically, Jeffrey Marshall never became an anesthetist. He became a very distinguished uh, chess physician instead. Uh, he treated Winston Churchill and uh, King George VI. And I suppose uh, someone said the definition of a gentleman is someone who knows how to play the saxophone but doesn't. And I suppose <laughs> Marshall uh, exemplifies that. Uh, also, one mustn't forget the contribution of, of the stellar contribution of uh, McGill and Robottom along with Harold Gillis, who effectively revolutionised endotracheal anaesthesia as we know it. So a lot of things developed during First World War and then we have a period between the the major wars, between the First and Second World War. Do you think there was enough going on in anaesthesia to prepare for World War II? Again, sadly not. And you just a few moments ago was suggesting that lessons learned tend to be forgotten quite rapidly. The interwar years, uh, from a military anaesthesia perspective, were fairly dull, or bland even. Uh, whereas on the civilian side, there were uh, extraordinary uh, uh, developments. Uh, returning anaesthetists became pioneers of this still uh, fairly young specialty, Henry Featherstone, who himself had been in the thick of conflict in the Western Front. He set up the uh, Association of Anaesthetists. Robert McIntosh, later Sir Robert McIntosh, uh, went to the Spanish Civil War. Uh, his experiences with uh, draw was to become the EMO vaporizer, the Epstein McIntosh Oxford vaporizer. So there was enough going on on the civilian side, but on the military side, not a lot. So much so that an advisor to the British Army in anaesthesia in 1939 commented that it was such a shame that the interwar years, nothing had been done to either bring the equipment scale or personnel to satisfactory levels in preparation for the Second World War. You see, what must be realised is many believed that the Great War would be the war to end all wars. Second World War coming relatively so soon after the Great War, perhaps didn't exactly catch them by surprise, but I think from an institutional perspective, things weren't quite ready yet. But nevertheless, during the Second World War, there were considerable technical and pharmacological developments. Would you agree? Yes, indeed. Um, And that's probably due to a combination of um, that the Allies represented. So there are a lot of American influence as well. Intravenous barbiturates had a huge role to play. Uh, the intravenous anesthesia itself became very uh, popular, especially in austere circumstances where, like I mentioned before, resupply could be uh, parlous. Cyclopropane and triline 
had been introduced, increasing use of local anesthesia, especially with blocks to complement and supplement uh, general anesthesia, became popular. Subarachnoid blocks, so-called spinals, continue to be viewed with caution, thankfully, in my view. The technical side of things, the Oxford vaporizer number one uh, was a temperature compensated circle breathing apparatus, and that, that came into use. Endotracheal intubation was much more widely used, and it actually became sort of standard of care. So there's enough going on in Second World War. I mean, endotracheal intubation is very important. It's something that we take for granted, perhaps, as anaesthetists. But for people listening who aren't within the speciality or indeed within medicine, the fact that you can place a tube within a patient's airway, which then means you can take over their breathing and you can give temporary muscle relaxation to allow surgical access to a body cavity such as the chest or abdomen, really revolutionises surgery. You're providing decent operating conditions and then taking the patient to a good physiological state, either prior to waking them up or taking them to intensive care. So what sounds like a simple thing, in fact, has opened the doorway to a lot of care. It's quite a big deal, yes. And and I think the use of muscle relaxants and endotracheal intubation, as you say, meant that needlessly deep anesthesia no longer was needed and recovery times were proportionately reduced and as was evacuation really so and recovery is a key thing in conflict so you're not having to hold on to people you can move them back along the evacuation absolutely yeah yeah but again there are other developments which again are quite important because anesthesia battlefield care is as, as we repeatedly say is a team game and and we can't do these things by ourselves. And uh, the Second World War saw the, the birth of an autonomous uh, blood transfusion service, which sent subunits all over the world. And they were hugely successful in, in optimizing patients before surgery, after combat injuries. So that was sort of uh, very, very uh, important. And this uh, married very nicely with quite impressive resuscitation protocols that had not previously existed. You talked about American influence. I'm going to return to that later on in our discussion when I visit Baghdad again. Yeah, yeah. And uh, talk about the protocols that the Americans shared with us during the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts. But it's interesting, I believe, to see how these links have been forged over a considerable period of time. It has, yeah. But talking about America, we can't. We have to mention uh, Thyopenton and Pearl Harbor uh, and all the urban myths that have uh, it has spawned, really. In reality, what happened really was that the debts, uh, yes, perhaps in inexperienced hands, in judicious use of Thyopenton did cause deaths, but actually there were multiple factors that contributed to the mortality. And the person who la- who first uh, laid the blame on Thyphenton was a chap called Holford, who was, interestingly, a surgeon, not an anaesthetist. So that's, that's uh, something that needs to be viewed in context, uh, rather than just necessarily swallowing the myths. Just tell us a little about the myth before you debunk it. It's not so much a myth, really. It's um, often... It is said that more U.S. soldiers or U.S. personnel were killed in Pearl Harbor through Thyopenton than by the Japanese. And clearly, that is an, a huge overstatement. There was actually a very good review of this very aspect in, I think, in the mid-90s in uh, anesthesia. Actually, the standard of monitoring, the level of uh, post-operative care, all those were not really optimal. 
at the time. And it is believed that those contributed to the mortality as much as the use of thypentone. And, uh, they were using 5% uh, solutions at the time as well. So uh, uh, there was an, uh, an element of in- inexperience, really. But I think one can't completely swallow this trope which says more were killed due to thypentone. Again, I think it's important to say for people not in the speciality that thiopentone is one of our intravenous anaesthetic agents, which you put into a vein, it goes into the body, goes around the body and puts the patient to sleep. And in fact, thiopentone and methohexatone were the anaesthetic agents that I learned with in the, in the 1980s. I can't leave World War II without mentioning uh, dear old Cecil Gray. Uh, Cecil Gray was the patron of the Tri-Service Anesthesia Society. He was, I remember. And um, he was in North Africa during World War II in the mobile neurosurgical unit set up by the charismatic uh, surgeon Hugh Keynes. And uh, sadly, Cecil had to be repatriated early due to pneumonia. But uh, Cecil Gray, one of the most distinguished anaesthetists that we've ever had, I still cherish the gift he made to me of uh, Dendal Cantley's history of the Army Medical Department. Long may he rest in peace. Indeed. Now, we've talked about the First World War, we've talked about the Second World War. Do you think there was any consolidation of effort after the Second World War, because it certainly wasn't a time of peace, was it? There was the Korean War, the Vietnam War. Uh, yes, from a British perspective, I think there was the Malaya uh, insurgency, yeah, Malaya campaign, Cyprus, yeah. and I, I don't detect any earth-moving developments in military anesthesia from a British point of view, but there were two aspects from uh, Korea and Vietnam that need to be mentioned that have a lasting impact. One is the emergence of the MASH, which is the Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, also popularised by the uh, sitcom. Uh, and the film. I, I blame the film very much for influencing my choice of career. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so that came into being. And the second was the dust-off. The dust-off is a call sign for a casualty evacuation uh, helicopter. The difference between a medivac and a casivac is the medivac has actually uh, the Red Cross logo on it and it is a dedicated uh, aircraft for casualty evacuation whereas a casivac flight is uh, a general helicopter which is just being commandeered for moving a casualty around so the, the former enjoys uh, geneva protocol protection whereas the latter does not but anyway i digress so the the, the dust off uh, began being used in korea and then the iconic huey helicopters in uh, vietnam they did actually change the timelines over which a casualty is brought to a surgical facility. Already, there were a lot of developments happening where hemorrhagic shock due to battle wounds was realised that time was of the essence and being brought to a definitive surgical facility uh, made all the difference to survival, really. So those were... Uh, I would say, uh, very important developments in uh, global military anesthesia, so to speak, which still has uh, resonance with us. Certainly, I mean, dust-off were active in a number of the conflicts that I've been involved with and were very generous in sharing their protocols and thoughts when we were developing the MERT, Medical Emergency Response Team, in Afghanistan. 
And I certainly worked with dust off in Kosovo and deployed on their aircraft, moving casualties from, um, in fact, northern Macedonia, not Harvest, the weapons collecting mission, uh, the latest sort of Balkan tensions, ironically taking casualties into Kosovo. It was stable then to the hospital in Pristina using dust off aircraft. The other thing that really is very important is in the 70s, the, um, uh, the invention of the tri-service anesthesia apparatus by Brigadier Ivan Houghton. He cobbled it together in the 70s by, again, uh, Shades of Marshall. He did not publish it till 1981. But what had happened was the EMO vaporizer, the Epstein Macintosh Oxford I mentioned earlier, that the Penlon drawer and the OMV, the Oxford miniature vaporizer, they all had been used successfully by the Australians in the Vietnam War. And Ivans was minded to come up with a system that uses uh, oxygen as the carrying uh, gas to deliver, originally it was ether, was a draw mechanism that he he came up with. This originally had calibrated scales for trilene and ether, and subsequently for um, halothane, enfluorane, and isoflurane. It had its baptism field in the Falklands conflict. It was in constant use by various surgical groups, the parachute surgical group. They reported it on it in journal articles. Very successful, very little maintenance. Drove uh, had a, almost uh, no need for any particular servicing, uh, even in extremes of temperature, though there was an element of calibration that needed to be done when in extremes of temperature, as in the desert and so forth. But in our time, if you remember, the Cape TC50 uh, ventilator and the I remember it well. oxygen, yes. <laughs> oxygen concentrator were added to that to, yes. to, to provide intermittent uh, positive pressure ventilation, which uh, proves the dictum that simplicity is fundamental for anything that is needed in austere circumstances in the military. Too many moving parts and something that can be maintained locally rather than being having to send back to UK for repairs or whatever. The Brigadier Ivan Houghton did a lot of work with airborne forces, and so it was very well, mindful. I was coming to that, yeah. really. I believe he may well be the first anaesthetist to get his SAS wings. Those wings are basically, it's um, wings that are worn on the sleeve to denote parachuting uh, capability, and those wings are still on display Museum of Military Medicine in uh, Aldershot. Originally, Ivan designed it to be carried on the back of a parachuting anaesthetist. Uh, I recall fondly a great photograph of Ivan with this strap to his back. In, in the journal, yeah. In Aden, uh, where yeah. he had just jumped into during, there was some civil war, I think, there. So, yes, it is very much designed for austere circumstances, and it was successfully used by the likes of me and Peter for years, and it was phased yeah. out only fairly recently because of uh, the inability to get their parts and conformity to CE requirement. Yeah, I was introduced to it prior to deployment on what was the Oxford Field Anesthesia course and then used it live in the 1990-91 Gulf War with halothane and trilene. Again, for people not in specialty, halothane is one of our agents that you breathe in that induces anesthesia and we're using trilene as an analgesic. The combination is fairly potent in giving you cardiac arrhythmias but at, at the time we really didn't have much in the way of monitoring other than a finger and uh, a shared ECG as the heart monitor and a shared oxygen monitor. So what we didn't know didn't hurt us and dealing with fit young people in the Gulf War I think everyone did fairly well, which is a relief to be able to say that. Now, we've talked about the, the post-war years. Anything else you'd like to add to that, Jack? 
I was in Germany when the Berlin Wall came down and there was this so-called peace dividend that happened. And that was accompanied by a period of stagnation, in my view, almost a kind of institutional inertia, so to speak, where I think one never ever thought that uh, we would be engaged in a very big conflict where our services would be needed. And along came the Gulf War I in 1991. Um, I remember being sent from Germany to, I think it was RAF Price Norton, and they promptly gave me five injections in each arm and then bundled me onto another transport aircraft. And there I was within 24 hours, completely unable to lift anything with, with either arm. Where were, um, you, where were you based? I, was, I think I went to Riyadh first. I, I don't oh. know what happened. I can't remember. And then I came back to Cyprus. And Riyadh, that was um, ended up where there was 205 hospital, I think. I could not help feeling that ranging from clinical protocols to equipment that could withstand desert heat and so on, everything was being done on the hoof. In the event, the first Gulf War was a short-lived affair and didn't result in that many casualties. As I think to misquote the Duke of Wellington, it, it was a close-run thing. Yeah, I was in the, in the, on the desert hospitals in northern Saudi. There was 3-2 Field, which was based around BMH Hanover, and that collected all the rag, tag and bobtail reservists, anaesthetists and clinicians like myself from a variety of units who were sort of stitched together to make this hospital. And our neighbour was 2-2 Field Hospital, our regular counterparts. And the way it worked out is we probably took the majority of the casualties coming back from the front line from mine strikes and there were some UK vehicles that were destroyed by US aircraft in what's called blue on blue, blue, blue. and there were people blown up during the breaching procedures for going through the uh, the sand berms and some gunshots things from the fighting in the trench clearing as well so they were coming back to us and that was my sort of proper induction into military wounding patterns, the use of the tri-service equipment. And I agree with you. One of the things that really struck me was I was working in resus and giving anaesthetics, and I was working for Bernard Riley, who at the time was working in London, later one became an intensivist in Nottingham. And Bernard was an authority in intensive care, and we were having to cobble together things. And I've got a picture of an X-ray being taken with a casualty on the floor and people sheltering behind gowns while the machine is sort of positioned to try and capture mm. the, the right part of the patient. And because the hospitals that had been deployed were sort of Cold War configuration, it's meant the assumption was for the Cold War when the Russians came over the Indo-German border, there'd be so many casualties we wouldn't need intensive care because we'd just be treating the ones who were going to survive to get them ready to fight again. This is the hospital we had, so Bernard had to adapt the what was something called the ground roll resuscitator, which was a device for ventilating nerve casualties and try and adapt that for managing intensive care casualties because the, the military adage, you won't need that, you won't be managing these casualties, doesn't really hold truth at contact. And we had young people with significant explosive injuries and significant gunshot injuries who needed to be ventilated and needed to be managed prior to their move back through the evacuation chain. So yes, there was a lot of innovation and that's something I had at the back of my mind as something that needed More to like be addressed. Improvisation, I think. Improvisation, <laughs> yes. That's something that had to be addressed. And I remember Bernard presenting on this at a, at a meeting, and there's lots of chundering from senior officers saying, well, I'm sure it wasn't like that. But they hadn't been out of their offices. No. You know, people with clean uniforms, nice creases, and the only ribbons they've got are uh, commemorative ones, do not have the authority to comment on operational realities. 
I have two memories strike me vividly about my time in Gulf War One. My job then was to um, go around the various units and recover these casualties to get them back home. Not just British casualties, but also Danish as well. Yeah. Saddam Hussein had set all the oil fields on fire and we were having to use car headlights in the middle of the day. It was pitch dark. God knows what noxious fumes we were breathing. It in. was everywhere, wasn't it? it? Was, you had yeah, oil on your thing in your hands and yeah. stuck to your face. It was in your hand. And the, the, the other memory yeah. is um, on one of my uh, Kazibak flights, uh, the air crew who had been captured by Iraqi forces, Peters and Nickel, they had just been released and they were on that aircraft. They were the first POWs, if you, if you like, I had ever seen in my, my career. It's not something you often see. Yeah, I mean, I've treated quite a few Iraqi POWs coming back and there was this image that the, you know, the Iraqi army was just a bunch of conscripts. So I'm sure some of them were, some of them were, were not very well trained at all. But the professional soldiers that came back through the evacuation chain were articulate and knowledgeable yeah, yeah, and yeah. very interesting to engage with in between surgeries. Jag and Peter, thank you very much for this excellent historical overview. The next podcast will pick the story up where the threats emerging from Iraq and Afghanistan demanded a completely different approach and clinical agility and innovation. Jag will question Peter and bring us up to date with current developments. The RCOA warmly welcomes members from across the globe. So if you are based outside of the UK, we invite you to discover the array of benefits available to you as an RCOA international affiliate. To learn more about joining and to explore the benefits of membership, visit rcoa.ac.uk forward slash international hyphen affiliate or click on the link in the show notes.